Welcome to the Cyber Firefight Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Tarrin, the Deputy CISO at Fortinet and author of the book, Fight Fire with Fire, Proactive Cybersecurity Strategies for Today's Leaders. In this Cybersecurity Perspectives podcast, we will talk with a different cybersecurity expert from the book in each episode and discuss valuable perspectives and important takeaways from their individual chapter. Welcome to today's session. Today I'm joined by Jenny Mena. She's Vice President of Business Cybersecurity Risk at a large healthcare organization and is also a member of the FSISAC Board of Directors. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you, Renee. Happy to be here with you. Great. I know as, as one of the contributors of Fight Fire with Fire Proactive Cybersecurity for today's leaders, uh, we'll talk dive into your chapter today because today you, your chapter is a really a hot topic talking about really looking at, um, you know, the, the threat landscapes and, and the threats we all face. But before we dive into the chapter, I was wondering if you could start off by, you know, telling us a little bit about your background and how you came into the cyber field. Sure. Well, certainly when I started out, when I went to college and graduate school, cybersecurity was not a career field yet. Um, I did take a computer science class as an undergraduate, but I have degrees in Russian civilization and international relations. And I started working in international development, didn't like that, and through a series of interesting twists, ended up in information technology, systems development, and integration. And the longer that I worked in that field, the more interest that there was in privacy and security of systems as more and more things, including sensitive systems that the government had, were connected to the Internet and started to have pieces of my role around what became cybersecurity. After 9-11, I moved from the healthcare group within this IT company to their national security group and was asked to work on a project helping to stand up the Department of Homeland Security functions of what became the cybersecurity group there. Uh, One of my government clients came up and said, we'd like to hire you to be a a government employee. And that was how I started my career in government. Um, I was in the Department of Homeland Security for nine years. I had a large variety of roles as the department and its cybersecurity components grew. I did everything from uh, public-private partnership, helping industry and also state and local government increase their cybersecurity posture. Um, I ran U.S. CERT at one point. I worked with federal agencies at other points, cybersecurity awareness workforce development, all sorts of different things. And I did a lot of work with the interagency, with the intelligence community and law enforcement, which is, of course, where I met my friend Renee, um, working closely with the National Security Agency. I was recruited to join U.S. Bank, where I started doing kind of threat intelligence functions and policy and coordination work with the industry began picking up additional functions. Um, Again, a a mixed bag of just about everything there was there. Um, Ended up with engineering and architecture, application security, in addition to some of those, uh, creating a BSO program, the whole time working very closely with industry and government partners, hence my role on the FSISAC board. And then um, a little over a year ago, I was recruited um, for my job as the deputy CISO at U.S. Bank to a healthcare company. And just like post 9-11, moving into Homeland Security seemed like a good time to make a change in the heart of the COVID pandemic. 
um, when I got that call about moving into healthcare and security of the incredibly critical systems and data that healthcare companies have, I made that change. Well, Jenny, you have definitely had a very diverse career, um, both inside the government and the public sector, the private sector. Um, and so that's that's a really fabulous um, insights for um, our listeners, because again, it really shows the diversity um, that you can do with a career field in the IT and cybersecurity field. You can definitely um, grow across multiple organizations, whether that's inside the government, critical infrastructure, um, and have a very worthwhile and challenging career. So again, thank you so much for your service. Um, um, so let's start off with, you know, diving into your chapter, um, you know, who's behind you know, the threats. But, you know, from your perspective, especially over the last year, as you mentioned, you know, dealing with the COVID-19 and the pandemic, um, how, how, from your perspective, has the threat landscape really changed? So I think the, the hottest pieces of cyber threat news in the past year have really been, um, one, I would say that this notion of the supply chain attack, and we rolled into 2021 with solar winds, where a nation state exploited an IT vendor and leveraged that exploit to get access to their customers' networks. And it's something that we've talked about for a long time as being a potential um, back in government days and, and have certainly thought about as an industry. But this was at, at major scale, um, a way that, again, an adversary was able to compromise this company that many, many other companies and government agencies used and to leverage their product and the update processes that all of us have with our, our key software vendors to get into those companies' networks and to persist there undetected for a pretty long time before they were finally discovered. Um, that was followed not too long after, and I always struggle to say the name of this company. There was the Kaseya um, incident that followed as well. So I think that has been a very hot topic and has caused both government and industry to really, you know, take a hard look at who are these vendors that we work with that are critical to us? Um, what if we couldn't use them from a business continuity perspective because of a major incident? Um, but also, what is their security? Are we looking closely enough? I heard people use some, um, you know, use the, the terms that, you know, sometimes the cobbler's children have no shoes. Do these IT companies that we rely so heavily on, do they have strong information security practices whether it's in their software development lifecycle or whether it's just overall the good security practices for their company. So I think that's been huge. Uh, the other thing that just won't go away, and I laugh because a couple years ago, one of the, the forecasts was that ransomware was on the decline, and I didn't believe it then. Um, and I, I definitely was right. Uh, ransomware has continued to grow, and we're continuing to see it hit big companies. And I think Colonial Pipeline um, and their ransomware incident this year showed us what, again, in government and industry, we've been worrying about and talking about for a long time, but hasn't been a huge issue in this country prior, was where you have a cyber attack that causes really visible physical consequences. And so there were lines of people who couldn't get gas um, because of the, this ransomware attack. And so I think it, again, it was another kind of big moment where things that we've thought about and worried about really came to the fore um, of, yeah, this really can happen, and it did. So what do we do about that next? 
So I think those are probably the two, I would say probably our two biggest headlines of this year um, from a cyber threat perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely when you're talking about the supply chain attacks, I mean, especially when you look at organizations and the number of vendors they run in their environments. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why I've talked with a lot of vendors who are looking to scale back um, and reduce some of the complexity they have in their environments. Because, you know, when you talk to some organizations, they have upwards of 40 some different uh, individual vendors um, in their ecosystems. And, you know, it makes it hard because, again, you know, a risk assumed by one is a risk assumed by all. Um, so that makes it much more uh, challenging uh, to manage, but also to, to mitigate when when there's issues. Um, similar to the whole ransomware thing, um, I, I agree. It's been going up, and it's definitely not something that's, that's going away anytime soon. And so um, it's going to remain a challenge for organizations that um, aren't pre- were prepared to, to address it. And so from your perspective, um, you know, can you tell us about who you think are some of those biggest ex- external threats that, that we're facing on, you know, if not daily, hourly, you know, by the minute. And, and again, I don't think this is one that hasn't changed a lot. Uh, we continue to see the, the biggest threat actors as nation states that have a variety of interests, whether it's intellectual property theft, whether it's more geopolitical um, kind of straight intelligence gathering, um, or, you know, in cases, as we've seen overseas, that operational preparation of the environment, supporting military and political operations. But we also see their nation states, um, sometimes as a result of sanctions from the U.S. or other financial woes that are willing to dabble from what you would think of as normal nation state activity into what's really criminal activity, um, enabled by the resources that nation states have. So, they're there. It's, you know, kind of the big four that there have been since we started talking about this. And I don't think any of that is going away anytime soon. Um, and I think where we have seen, unfortunately, tremendous growth and advancement is on the capability of those criminal actors, um, those really organized crime groups that are incredibly sophisticated that partner with each other, that are able to conduct the, you know, kind of the kind of sophisticated attacks now that we might have thought, you know, five or six years ago, you really would need a nation state to kind of do. They have talent, they have resources. And as things like, you know, these ransomware attacks are successful, that puts money back into their coffers. And, you know, they have innovation and customer service and also by selling some of their services, things like ransomware as a service, they're also lowering the barrier to entry into this space to criminals that are less sophisticated, um, but you know that, that wanna get in on the game. So they can buy software that's much easier to use. You don't have to develop it yourself um, and, and get into the, the cyber crime business. We continue to struggle with actors operating overseas um, not just nation states, but criminals that operate in countries where there might not be the best rule of law, the, the most effective extradition strategies. And I think our, you know, I will say our, our law enforcement um, ha- has really improved their ability to do attribution, um, has really stepped up the game, I think, in catching the bad guys. And I know that our, our military intelligence community also ha- have put significant pressure on a variety of different adversaries, but it's 
you know, it's not going to go away. It's just going to continue to evolve because, you know, that's where the money is. So crime, as I've said, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money robbing stagecoaches anymore. It's where, where do you get to the, the abilities to steal money or things that you can monetize, whether it's, you know, sensitive health information, whether it's credit card numbers, that's, you know, doing it on scale online. So those are really the biggest external actors. There's, you know, still hacktivism there out on, on the periphery, but I think cyber crime is really the, the biggest story in terms of growth and sophistication and something that I wish would go away, but I don't think will. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, again, you know, traditional, you know, criminals were, you know, geographically, you know, dispersed. And so their, their, their reach was, you know, very limited. But now with the internet and the interconnectivity, um, I agree. Um, you know, the, that reach has definitely expanded, and like you said, working together. Um, and I've often said, you know, that's why on the cybersecurity side of, of things that uh, we on the defense side need to be working to, together more collab- collaboration amongst ourselves and more uh, partnership you know, for pre- between the private and public sector specifically because, um, you know, the bad guys are doing it, working together. So, you know, we too should be working together as well. Um, so one of the things that, you know, we, we've talked about, and I know you mentioned, you know, ransomware, um, but you know, so from your perspective, what are some of the, the tried and true techniques and tactics, um, you know, that we're seeing that, you know, the, the bad guys are continuing to use against us? Sure. And, you know, you and I have been working this issue together for a very long time. And I feel like the the best practices um, and the most frequent ways that companies are compromised continues to be those things that we would have presented on back in our government days was would be the same presentation I would have given 10 years ago, which is talking to companies about phishing, making sure your employees are not Clicking on those links, whether it's, you know, in the past, it was more heavily opening a file and downloading malware. There's still quite a bit of that, but there's also, um, you know, clicking and entering credentials. Credential harvesting and, and getting access that way is a highly popular and successful phishing campaign. We've seen more evolution into, you know, vishing and, and text as well, but phishing continues to be incredibly successful, and that's because it works. Social engineering is is a successful way to get in. So training your employees, you know, having good processes around phishing continues to be one of the most important things you could do because it's still such an easy way in. Um, We also continue to see, um, you know, the bad guys leveraging vulnerabilities that everyone knows are there. I mean, we're not talking about zero days that have not been announced. There are the things that we know we should have fixed and we haven't. And so it, you know, again, it's, it, you don't have to make the advanced persistent threat, bring out the advanced. You can often just be the adequate persistent threat because we have known vulnerabilities that aren't addressed. Um, those things continue to be a challenge. And so it's easy to get very focused on, oh my gosh, you know, supply chain attacks. And I think that's certainly important, um, both that software supply chain and also understanding who your third parties are and how they're connected with your networks. But some of those basics around what we call good cyber hygiene, um, implementing well-known good practices around things like multi-factor authentication, having least privilege, and of course, having a good, you know, incident response plan in place, 
are, are all the same things we've been talking about for many, many years um, and continue to be the recommendation that comes out in after actions after an incident. Yep, I, I agree. It, it's some of that, that, what we call that low-hanging fruit uh, continues to be some of the, the hardest Achilles heel for a lot of or organizations um, for, for whatever reason. But um, I agree with you. It, you know, it's not taking sophisticated tools and techniques to get in when we're leaving the doors and windows you know, unlocked. Um, on the flip side, though, we are definitely seeing the adversary up their games um, by using, you mm -hmm. know, AI and machine learning, um, you know, to broaden, um, you know, the scope and span of, of their attacks and also, you know, to get, you know, deeper penetration into um, an organization or multiple organizations. Um, but, you know, similarly, you know, when we look at some of the cyber criminals, you know, what you talked about with the ransomware that, you know, it's a low entry to barrier, you know, anybody can, can start doing that. You know, one of the scary things we're also seeing pr from some of the ransomware attacks is that, you know, some of these, you know, cyber criminals aren't very sophisticated um, and, and lack some of those skills when it comes to doing um, the necessary coding or, or what have you, because we've seen, you know, ransomware attacks where, you know, they couldn't give the key back even if they wanted to because, you know, the attack was deployed uh, incorrectly. And so we've seen organizations where there was no chance of ever recovering their data because simply the criminals couldn't even give the data back even if they want to, even if they were paid because um, simply just not having the expertise. So you kind of run, run the gamut um, when it comes to the adversaries, um, whether they're sophisticated or highly um, you know, inadequate in, in some of their skills and, and abilities. But um, regardless, the number of them um, seems to constantly be increasing and, and the, the tactics and techniques they're using are, are always, in a, increasing and evolving. Um, so switching okay. gears a little bit, and when we talk about, you know, we've talked a lot about the external threat, but that's not the only threat that we face. Um, you know, the insider threat has always been, you know, the hardest and most challenging for organizations, you know, to mitigate because you're dealing with known trusted insiders. Um, and so even with since the pandemic, you know, with people working from home, um, the chances of more having disgruntled employees because organizations facing cutbacks and, and layoffs. Um, most organizations, you know, in, that are surveyed say that, you know, the threat of insider um, attacks have, have also increased. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the insider threat that we face? You know, what are some of those types and, you know, what should we be looking for to, to combat them in our organizations? Definitely. And I, you know, the insider threat is, again, not new. And there are different kinds of insiders that are a threat. There are the employees that are unintentionally um, clicking on those phishing links, um, giving away information, making poor security choices. So for those insiders, obviously, training is very important. They may also be employees who are, because they're no longer working in the physical security of an office, may be making lax decisions about how they handle their IT equipment, whether they're working from home or in a coffee shop or wherever, um, that increase of flexibility in place where you can't see that it's Renee sitting at her desk. Um, you know, you are also expanding that, that surface, whether it's poorly secured Wi-Fi wherever you're working, whether it's walking away from a device and a, a roommate or, or somebody else approaches that device. Um, certainly issues with that physical move out of the, the visible presence of coworkers. Um, 
So again, there's kind of that awareness, maybe the unintentional insider. I do think that the other piece of that, what I'll call unintentional insider that we continue to see is, you know, people that are, people are humans, make mistakes, may click that phishing email, but also are in IT positions and may misconfigure something that opens up a company for an attack. Um, There was a a very sophisticated, highly secure consulting company that had a, an issue this year. And it was because in, in spite of what their policy was, there was a server somewhere that didn't have the right security controls in place. Um, and so it's making sure that you have all of your employees well-trained on security, but also that you trust but verify because humans make mistakes. Are all the controls implemented um, You know, are you building security in and making it more and more difficult for those mistakes to happen? I would also say that, of course, there are also the malicious insiders. And there have always been malicious insiders in both industry and government for whatever the reason, whether it's revenge, whether they don't like the size of their raise or bonus, whether they're getting ready to leave, um, you know, and they want to take some sort of revenge or whether they are looking to leave and take intellectual property with them to their next whatever their next gig is. Um, And certainly this year, one of the biggest things, uh, the most striking things that we saw was um, malicious actors approaching an insider and offering them a million dollars to help them compromise a company. It's pretty amazing when you think that the person said no. Um, But how many people in all of our companies do you think would say no to even $100,000? particularly when there are you know, different kinds of economic challenges, when there are, you know, there are very different opinions um, about COVID policies within companies, kind of further creating some of that employee disgruntlement risk. So we have to continue to look for how do we identify those malicious insiders? How do we implement strong security policies, whether it's least privilege, um, whether it's you know, monitoring access behavior for our employees for things that are unusual, using data loss prevention tools to make sure that things aren't going out that shouldn't, increasing monitoring when you have somebody who is has, has said they're going to be leaving a company. And again, really focusing on kind of how do you identify those behaviors quickly to prevent damage. Yeah, I absolutely um, agree. And it's also, you know, leveraging things like multi-factor authentication, you know, so that, you know, when employees get their username and passwords compromised, that we're adding an additional layer of protection. Um, And similarly, you know, you you touched on, you know, least privileged people should only, you know, have the right to similar to what we did in the government. You you have a need to know, then you you have the access for only what for what you need to do to do your job. And a lot of people definitely have those policies in place for when people onboard and exit the organization. But a lot of times where people forget is when they transfer between departments within an organization. Um, When you go from one department to another department, you may not need all of that expertise, you know, or access, um, you know, from your previous position to a new position within the organization. Um, I know we saw that in one of the healthcare organizations during the pandemic, you know, that faced that insider threat and that the person ended up having more access than they should have because they simply just never did a review of the access that they had as they moved around within the the organization. Um, So that's one of the things that definitely, you know, when you're dealing with the insider that organizations really need to be looking at, you know, um, like you said, that least privilege, 
um, and then making sure that you got some of the proper monitoring in, in, in place to um, uh, detect it. Um, but also be prepared how to, how to handle it. Um, a lot of times, you know, when you're dealing with insider threat, it's simply just not a security and IT problem. It's you're going to have to involve your legal and your HR teams, um, you know, when they, these type of uh, situations arise. So, Jenny, um, you know, want to wrap things up, but before we go, I just want to get your perspective on, you know, as we close out, you know, 2021, we head into 2022. Um, what would be um, you know, a piece of good advice that you would give to you know, your fellow cyber leaders um, as we start off heading into the new year. Sure. And, and, you know, for people that are in the cybersecurity trenches of different companies and agencies, I would say partnership is critical. Um, partnership internal to your company, really partnering with what we call, you know, the business side of the business understanding what kind of data, what kind of information assets do you have that are potentially of interest to a threat actor, whether it's a nation state, whether it's a, a criminal group. Um, what are those things that are most important? And how do those systems work? How do they connect? Who are the third parties that you're working with? What does their connectivity look like? really understand how the business is using data and systems to really understand and focus your resources where the greatest risk might be. There's also a huge value in having those conversations and helping the business side partners understand why security is important and taking good steps on their side, whether it's investment, whether it's training, um, whether it's bringing security in at the beginning rather than at the end with their new ideas. So I think that kind of internal partnership, in addition to, as you mentioned, your legal partners, your corporate comms partners to be ready, because even, they said, some of the most sophisticated, secure companies, things go wrong um, and they do have incidents. So making sure you are ready if that bad day happens, no matter how good you think you are. Um, is lots of partnership inside the company. But I think there's also tremendous value in partnership outside of your company um, with groups like the information sharing and analysis centers because those threat actors are evolving quickly. Um, but there's tremendous value in knowing this is what this other company like mine saw yesterday or this morning. That way I know what I'm looking for. And then the next time I see something, I can share it with them. So one company is protection um, and what they've identified can become everyone else's prevention. It really helps us expedite um, both identifying the threat, but also, well, what did you guys do about it? Um, really coming up with how do we quickly respond to these problems? I think there's tremendous value in having those partnerships with your peers so that we're not all learning the lessons for the first time ourselves. Um, but really sharing as a community. And certainly that also extends to government partners, working with law enforcement, sector-specific agencies, Department of Homeland Security, to understand what the government knows and when necessary to be prepared to engage them to assist. Yep, absolutely. I think one of the things we've always said, even when we were back in the government, is you know, cybersecurity is a team sport. Um, we all have a role to play, and um, we need to help each, out, each other out as much as possible. 
Jenny, thanks so much um, for one, being a contributor to Fight Fire with Fire and providing all your valuable insights um, into the book um, and continuing to be a cyber advocate for us and women everywhere. Thank you so much, Renee, and thank you for bringing this, this book and this podcast series together. All right. So thanks everyone for listening. If you want information, more information on Fight Fire with Fire, um, you can go to our blog at ftnt.net forward slash cyber firefight.